Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and is peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through this podcast, we delve into some of the issues raised in print via discussion with experts in the field. The March 2017 issues devoted to drug development. The March issue, as well as all the past YJBM issues, is currently available on PubMed and is open access, which means that anyone can access the reviews, research, and perspectives that we have in this issue. Today, we have our second installment in our series on drug development, where we will be discussing the role of academic research in aiding to and collaborating with drug development. I'm your host, Helen Balenson, a third-year graduate student in immunobiology. And I'm Allie Kuhlman, a fellow third-year in immunobiology. Joining us today, we have Dr. Katerina Politi, an associate professor in the Department of Pathology in the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Politi's lab focuses on understanding the molecular mechanism of lung cancer. As such, she is continually placed at the intersection between the clinical and basic research. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Politi. We are so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Um, So just to get the conversation starting off, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about what your lab specifically studies? My laboratory is really interested in understanding the molecular basis of lung cancer. And in particular, we're really interested in seeing how alterations in genes and in the landscape, the genomic landscape of a tumor, actually influences the sensitivity of that cancer to specific therapies. Um, so to, to go in a little bit more for lung cancer, to give a, a little bit of a history to people who don't necessarily think about and work with it, um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about these particular types? You mentioned kind of genomics, but just to kind of explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Sure. So until about a, a decade ago, we really didn't know much about the genetics of lung cancer. Lung cancer was really seen as um, one big disease that then could be subdivided into two histopathological categories. So one small cell lung cancer, which had one specific origin, and then non-small cell lung cancer with another specific origin. And then we knew that if you looked at uh, tissue sections of lung cancer under the microscope, that you could further subdivide these into different categories. And and you'd see adenocarcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas, so different histological subtypes of lung cancer. But we didn't really know very much about the genetic alterations present in the tumors. And over the past decade or so, through advances in our ability to, to, to sequence genes that are present in tumor cells, we've really uncovered uh, alterations in genes that are really important for the development of tumors. And we know, for example, in one of the subtypes of lung cancer, lung adenocarcinomas, that there are different mutations in different genes And the presence of a mutation can actually lead to the formation of a protein in the tumor that is really important for the survival of the tumor cells. And that if you are able to block the activity of that protein, you can actually get the tumor cell to die. So those... But if you use... So if you use a drug targeting that altered protein, then you can... You'll have... The tumor will be sensitive to the drug and regress. 
But if that tumor, if you use the same drug on a tumor that doesn't have that altered protein, the tumor actually will not go away. So it's really important to understand the genetic basis of the specific lung cancer that an individual has to understand whether they should receive one of these therapies or not. So that kind of ties into the next questions that we wanted to ask about general courses of treatment for patients. So it sounds like now we're trying to shift over and kind of personalized medicines for tumors. So kind of trying to figure out the biology of a particular tumor and match a treatment to it. Uh, could you touch on kind of the general courses of treatments that used to be, that patients used to get before this advancement in technology that led us to this greater understanding of the subtypes of lung cancers and sub-subtypes of cancer, lung cancers, and I'm sure sub-sub-sub-sub-subtypes? So yes, absolutely. Um, and when we really only knew about the histological uh, differences between different lung cancer types. Maybe a patient with small cell lung cancer would get one type of chemotherapy, and a patient with non-small cell lung cancer would get another type of chemotherapy. So these drugs that will lead to death of cells because of their the fact that they're proliferating very rapidly. But now that we have all of this information on the genetic basis of the disease, and we know about specific alterations that can happen in certain tumors, especially in lung adenocarcinomas, that's where we've made the most advances to date. One of the things that we know is that certain there are certain situations in which uh, the, the patient's tumor should be tested right away and um, if that tumor has one of these specific alterations, then there are drugs that are used as the first line of therapy for patients with this disease. And one of the, um, one of the classic prototypical examples of this is the setting of uh, mut uh, mutations in the epidermal growth factor receptor. So EGF receptor. EGF receptor is a molecule that is present at the cell surface and that can transmit cell proliferation and survival signals to, uh, to a cell. And there's a subset of cases of lung adenocarcinoma where mutations, alterations in the epidermal growth factor receptor are found that keep it always on. And what this means is that the, the lung cell suddenly has this continuous signal uh, to proliferate and divide. And this is what gives rise to lung adenocarcinomas, EGF receptor mutant lung adenocarcinomas. And now what we know is that if we give patients with tumors harboring these EGF receptor alterations, drugs that block the activity or stop this mutant EGF receptor from functioning and from being continuously on, then um, the tumors will, uh, the tumor cell will not be able to survive, will die and, uh, and go away. So, so we know that, so these are called targeted therapies. And there are several examples in lung cancer, mostly in lung adenocarcinoma, where we know about these specific alterations that are matched to different therapies. In recent years, there's also been, there have been additional advances and, um, uh, through clinical studies and through through scientific investigations and labs, people have discovered uh, 
drugs that target the immune system that are able to reawaken the function of T cells that are present in tumors and that can lead them, the immune system then to attack and to lead to the regression of tumors. These immunotherapies function in various types, histological types of lung cancer. And um, they uh, actually seem to be perhaps associated and work better when the tumors have a lot of genetic alterations and so potentially have more molecules on the surface that are novel, that are recognized by the immune system and that can help make the immune system function better to kill the tumor cells. These immunotherapies actually have been approved. There are several that are approved for the treatment of lung cancer, specifically non-small cell lung cancer. And um, even in the first line, um, uh, in fact, just recently, the combination of one of these immunotherapies in combination with chemotherapy was approved for the first line treatment of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. So um, to kind of delve into these drugs a little bit more, I think our listeners are probably pretty aware of the side effects for chemotherapy. Um, what, What are generally the side effects of these targeted therapies, either targeted genetic mutations or immune targeting? I mean, how does this differ for the patient? So the the side effects of targeted therapies will depend on what the, the actual target is of the drug. So in the case, for example, of EGF receptor inhibitors, uh, these are uh, going to, the, the tissues that are gonna suffer the most or be more susceptible to the use of these agents are the tissues where wild type regular functioning EGF receptor plays an important role. And these are, for example, the skin. It's, in fact, called the epidermal growth factor receptor. And also um, the uh, intestines, um, where where the protein uh, is also uh, plays plays a role in, in the function of that tissue. And so, so people can have problems with their skin and with their intestinal problems. In, in the case, but one of the actually exciting things that has emerged is that there are newer and better targeted therapies that are also being developed that are more specific towards the only the altered forms. And uh, so in the case of EGF receptor inhibitors, there's some new agents that are now just work on the mutant forms and actually will not hit the wild type normal functional EGF receptor and um, unless the doses are really, really high. And so that's really helpful because you can avoid or at least try to minimize, the hope is to be able to minimize some of these toxicities. In the case of immunotherapies, uh, people are observing in the clinic toxicities that are the ones that one would imagine are associated with uh, reactivation, activation of the immune system. So a lot of the itises and inflammatory um, uh, diseases uh, are being observed as um, has um, side effects, and these can, to a certain extent, be controlled also by using immunosuppressive therapies, and that's what physicians do in the clinic. Yeah, so it seems like this is obvi- lung cancer is obviously a very complex system, a complex organism in and of itself, and there's, and I think that really speaks to the importance of basic research um, in studying something like lung cancer and studying kind of the molecular bases for lung cancer and how to treat it and things like that. Um, and we were hoping to talk to you about your the uh, model that you helped create, the genetically inducible model that you helped create um, when you were doing your postdoc in the Varmus lab. Um, and we were 
And we were wondering if you could speak to the process of designing this model, kind of how it came to life conceptually, kind of its importance, and then kind of how it came to be and the findings that you found uh, from the mouse model that have helped in the clinic. Sure. So when when I was a postdoctoral fellow, this was just at the time that EGF receptor mutations were being discovered, and they were actually uncovered by several groups uh, working in Boston. And then a colleague in the Varmus lab also found, William Powell, also had found these mutations in lung cancer. And we were working um, in the same bay on this. And so when he found these EGF receptor mutations, it was a very exciting time in the lab. And I had just come from graduate work in which I had um, worked on developing mouse models, better mouse models to study cancer biology. And so it 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 just, as these mutations were discovered, I said, well, you know, one of the things that would be great is to develop an animal model because once you have an animal model of the disease, you can actually begin to study what what is happening, what happens to a lung cancer cell when you have or a lung cell, when you have this mutated EGF receptor present, what are the changes that happen in those tumor cell in those cells that make them become tumorigenic? How does the tumor then develop? Does the tumor then actually need that protein there continuously that for it to function? How do the tumors progress? Because we know that tumors initially will arise, starting really from a single cell, develop, the cells multiply, and then eventually the tumors will then um, uh, be able to invade adjacent tissue and then actually leave the original tissue and metastasize to different sites. And so we figured that if we could develop an animal model, we could study the biology and the signaling too. what happens when you have this altered EGF receptor present in the tumor cells and what happens to the signaling pathways what are the requirements for that mutant EGF receptor to function and the important reason to do all of these experiments is really that once you start to get gain insight into the mechanisms by which these molecules function you can then think of developing um, even better, new and better therapeutic strategies to actually target the disease. So did your animal model specifically predate these targeted EGF receptor therapies? Actually, they uh, it did not. Um, interestingly, the, tar- the first targeted therapies t- th- for EGF receptor were developed with an idea of um, targeting wild-type EGF receptor because people knew that there were high levels of of wild-type EGF receptor in um, subsets of lung cancer. And so it actually kind of went the other way around. So in the clinic, physicians who were using these agents in clinical trials saw that there was a subset of patients whose tumors were really going away very dramatically. Um, in when they were being treated with these uh, EGF receptor inhibitors. And so then what they did is then they said, oh, okay, let's see why. Let's try to understand why. And when they looked into that, they found these EGF receptor mutations. That's so cool. It's kind of like you kind of expect things to go one way in the clinic and then something amazing happens and then there's these kind of spontaneous discoveries and it's a and then that leads to even more discoveries, and now we know so much more about kind of the physiology of 
the EGF, the mutated EGF receptors in lung cancer. It's a really exciting discovery. And I think it really shows you the power of the interaction between the clinical investigators and the laboratory sciences and how that communication and how knowing about these, what, what really paying attention to what you're seeing and then being able to relate that to us, to what, to discovering what might be happening is really, um, is really, really very powerful. And I think um, that William Powell, when he, um, the, the colleague who found these EGF receptor mutations and whom, uh, who was at Sloan, he had, he was, a, he is a physician scientist and was in the lab and he was working with uh, animal models of lung cancer that have another oncogenic alterations in which um, we can actually turn on and off expression of the oncogene of this altered protein that causes lung tumors. And so he knew from these mouse models that when he turned it on, they got tumors, and that when he turned off the gene, the tumors went away. And so he was looking he had seen in the lab a mouse with a lung tumor, and he had seen the tumor go away, and then he was in the clinic, and he was seeing patients where this similar thing was happening, totally different genes involved, but similar thing was happening, and so he knew that there was something, there had to be something there that these drugs were working on, and so that's how then he went into looking for the gene. I feel like that really speaks to this idea in science. I feel like a lot of graduate students are really jealous of these instances where someone makes a spontaneous discovery. But I think uh, people rarely talk about that you need to have kind of the mind to notice these slight differences and kind of the creativity to say, like, this is an interesting question. So I think that's a really... Yeah, so you're mentioning kind of the involvement of the physician scientist in in interaction with the clinic um, in your your postgraduate studies, but do you mind speaking a little bit more about that environment here at Yale Um, and, and, you know, specifically the the lung cancer spore or um, your work with the rebiopsy program and how Mm -hmm. that aspect is also um, of Yale's collaborative environment is impacting your research? Yes, I think uh, Yale has really demonstrated itself to be a, an, an ideal place for me to be able to do the type of research that I do, in which I do very basic studies, um, and trans- but then I translate those studies and also participate in clinical studies. And this has been thanks to colleagues in, uh, in medical oncology, for example, Scott Gettinger and Roy Herbst. Scott Gettinger, who's a thoracic oncologist, and I both had an interest in studying how tumors become resistant to some of these targeted therapies and immunotherapies. And so a number of years ago, we set up a program to be able to collect samples from tumors that have developed resistance to these agents. And so that then we can really study what the molecular mechanisms are that underlie the emergence of drug resistance in these tumors. And this is... um, allowed us to gain insight into mechanisms of resistance to these drugs and um, 
we've we started out with targeted therapies, but there are also Yale has run some of the, many of the early studies on immunotherapies as well. So we've been able to study samples that have developed uh, acquired resistance resistance to immunotherapies as well. And this has actually broadened our horizons because we've also started working with the immunobiology department here. And um, uh, we have very re- regular meetings that are inter- interdisciplinary with people from all different, um, with all different backgrounds. And it's, it's been an incredible um, journey that continues. Yeah, so if, let's, um, if we could shift over a little bit back into the mouse model. So um, the, if I'm not mistaken, the mouse models that you predominantly work with in your lab are genetically inducible models. Um, but in humans, um, it tends to not be genetically inducible cancers. Um, I don't think there are people who would be happy with that situation. So are there, um, are there major caveats in, associated with studying uh, kind of inducible cancer models in mice? Um, and could you speak to those? A little, and how does that interact with kind of studying the interactions with drugs and the lung cancer and the immunotherapies. The ability to predict response. So both within the context of targeted therapies where you are able to mm-hmm. model the oncogenic signaling versus kind of something that's a little bit more complex with the, the multiple mutations and that response with, with mm-hmm. uh, to immunotherapy. So, the, so tumors in, in, in people arise, they start from a single cell that acquires an alteration and then subsequently acquires additional alterations and you have the tumor forming within the context of the original tissue in which it develops. And that, I think, is one already over a long period of time. And that is already one major difference compared to some of the genetically engineered mouse models that we have now. The models that we use now are much more sophisticated than they used to be. There's been a process. There have been many improvements in the models over the years. Um, in the models that uh, I've worked with, mostly these are inducible, these are um, inducible models in which we can turn on expression of the gene of interest in uh, cells uh, specifically in the tissue of interest. So the good thing is that we can study what happens when we turn on expression of the gene just in the lung. We're interested in lung cancer, and we can do that specifically in the lung. In the first iterations of animal models, that that wasn't even possible uh, early on. So we can we can do that. We can turn on expression when we want to in the adult. And lung cancer is a disease of adulthood, so that's a good thing. The problem is that we're turning on expression of the um, oncogene in many cells at the same time. And so what happens is that, so one of the big caveats is there's a big difference. A tumor in a person starts um, in one cell, takes a long time to develop, and here in these animal models, we're turning on expression in, in many different cells all at the same time. So what does this do? Well, first of all, you then have a limited, the tumor forms generally quite quickly, and we know from some of the studies that we've done that there are limited numbers of mutations or additional alterations that are present in these tumor cells. And also what happens is because of the time frame within which the tumors develop, the animals don't, um, the, the tumors don't really metastasize. 
to different tissues. So it's a little bit different than the setting of lung cancer in people in which, uh, unfortunately, people are, 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 are frequently diagnosed when the tumors have already gone to advanced stages. So these are some of the, the, the caveats. Um, in the context of uh, targeted therapies, uh, this is um, what, what, what happens if we take the mouse models of uh, lung cancer that we study and um, we treat them with an EGFR inhibitor, the tumors go away dramatically. So you get almost these complete responses. Tumors go away. It looks like the mouse is essentially cured at least or has had a really phenomenal response. What happens in, in, in patients who are treated with these drugs is that you frequently get, you most frequently get partial responses. So the tumor regresses in part, but it doesn't go away completely. And so that's one of the major differences um, between uh, between the human and mouse systems. In the in the context of uh, Im immunotherapy, where we think that the number of mutations contributes to the responsiveness of the tumor to immunotherapy, it can be very difficult using animal models in which you don't have very many mutations to um, be able to observe sensitivity to these therapies. So there's ongoing work by a number of groups to really improve our, our mouse models of lung cancer so that we really can mimic the mutational diversity that is seen in human lung cancers better in our in our mouse models to be able to study the immunotherapies better. So as someone who doesn't study lung cancer or cancer at all, is this would these mouse models kind of would you introduce first one hit and then a second kind of mutation or hit to the mouse models and kind of try to make the lung cancers more complex or have additional mutations? Is that kind of one of the directions? So, so one of the things that we already have done is we've um, we've layered on an additional mutation that we know is important mm -hmm. and is found in, pati in patients' tumors with EGF receptor mutations. And so we've layered that on, and in fact, we see a difference in the ability of those tumors to respond to targeted therapies. One of the other things that you can do is you can also uh, layer on alterations in um, genes that are important for the repair of DNA. And so that if alteration that so that you get as cells divide, they'll have more alterations that can't be fixed properly. And so then you will have tumors that have more alterations. So the, there are various different approaches. Another approach is that of using carcinogens that um, are present in things like tobacco smoke. And tobacco smoke, of course, is really um, plays a pivotal role in the development of lung cancer and the carcinogens in it. So we can also use carcinogens, tobacco carcinogens, to model lung cancer in mice, and those will have more mutations as well. Um, so, so we've talked about genetically inducible models of cancer and carcinogen-induced. Um, would you speak to one of the other types of models, which is actually an implantation, so like an ectopic, and kind of the pros and cons of a genetically induced model as opposed to something like that? So with those, do you just put in cancer cells into directly into the lungs of kind of mice that aren't yet sick or don't yet have cancer? So there, so there are various different ways in which you can use um, implantation or transplantation models in, in which you can take cell lines and you can implant them either subcutaneously, 
so under the skin in the flanks of a mouse or you can also implant them orthotopically which means you put them into the tissue from which they came so um, th those are two different approaches so one of the one of the advantages of using these systems is that you can if you have cell lines and um, that then you want to put into the mouse, you can actually uh, perform alterations in cell culture, so outside of the animal, quite easily and quite readily. So if you have to study the function of specific genes um, and the role in sensitivity and resistance for a ther to therapy, for example, you can actually alter those genes in cell culture quite fast, and then you can put those cells in and see what the consequences are of that alteration in uh, the animal model. That's much quicker than um, performing the studies in uh, the genetically engineered uh, mouse models. And the other thing is if you do the experiments on the flank, for example, you can actually just measure this. Um, you don't need to have special imaging to be able to detect the tumors and follow the tumors within um, the, the, the animal itself. If you, um, so, so, so that's in terms of the, the, the advantages of the transplantation models. They also have disadvantages because um, these, especially if you use them uh, subcutaneously, for example, or in a tissue different from the tissue in which they uh, arise, you don't have the same environment uh, that is present in, in the tissue normally. And uh, another disadvantage is that these are already tumor cells. So whatever you're altering, you're altering it, or whatever gene you're studying, you're studying it within the context of a tumor that is already formed. So for example, uh, in a spontaneous model or in a model where the tumor develops genetically because of in vivo, because of alterations that one is inducing, then all of the interactions between the tumor cells and all the other cells around and all the other systems um, have to happen uh, and the tumor emerges from that. So you're actually looking at a process that is more relevant physiologically to the process of a human tumor developing. Um, so within that uh, response, you in a couple times throughout this episode, you've mentioned resistance to targeted therapies. Um, can you explain a little bit more what that is? So I've told you about how these targeted therapies work really well in specific subsets of uh, patients with lung cancer. One of the things that unfortunately happens, however, is that the uh, tumors, although they initially respond to the therapy, eventually resistance to these therapies emerges, which means the tumor that was contained starts to grow again. And we've learned a lot about the mechanisms of resistance to these therapies. We know, for example, that in many cases what happens is the original protein that was altered, that is the target of the therapy, changes in such a way that the therapy can't work anymore. And um, this is uh, unfortunate, but it's perhaps one of the most, um, one of the mechanisms of resistance that can most be dealt with in the sense that then new drugs can be developed to actually target that mechanism of resistance. 
And there are many examples of this in lung cancer um, and also in, in other cancer types where there are targeted therapies that um, can, can hit specific uh, targets present on the tumor cells. Um, so, so, so that's one of the one of the problems, and one of the major caveats I think of targeted therapies now is the fact that we know that resistance will emerge. So there's a lot of work ongoing to see if one can use various different approaches together um, to overcome drug resistance, and not only to overcome it, but also to really see if one can delay the emergence uh, of resistance, or even eventually it would be ideal to be able to totally prevent the emergence of resistance. So do you, so in the models, for example, with the mutated EGFR, um, do you find that there are mice who develop resistance to the targeted immunotherapies that you're testing in these models? And do you find that in your research, are you trying to explore kind of ways to kind of target the escapees? That's right. So one of the things that we do with our animal models, with our mouse models of EGF receptor mutant lung cancer, for example, is we've been able, we study resistance to the the targeted therapies in um, these models, and we look at the what the mechanisms of resistance. We get resistance. And um, we know that in many cases, the mechanisms of resistance are parallel to the mechanisms of resistance that are found in human uh, resistant tumors. So that's um, suggesting that it's a useful model to be able to study drug resistance. One of the other things that we can do is we've actually even engineered some of the more common mechanisms of resistance into the animal models directly, and then these can be used to study new therapies and new approaches to overcome drug resistance. And uh, one of these approaches, for example, is an approach of combining several different targeted therapies. And uh, we found in our animal models that if we use the combination uh, versus just the single drugs, we can see that that delays the emergence of resistance significantly in our animal models. And in fact, that actually combination has uh, gone into clinical trials. Was and this as a direct impact of your, your work or, or collaboration or contact with the clinical trial? So this is, this is it, and in, in many of these... Um, uh, many of these findings are part of a process. So this was originally started from work at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, working with William Pau, a collaborator then, who um, someone in his lab had actually tested this combination in the setting of drug-resistant disease. And so, um, and, and had gone on to explore that, and that was explored in the context of drug-resistant disease. And then when uh, I came to Yale, one of the things that we said, well, what happens if we actually take that combination and we use it um, as the first line of therapy? Can we delay resistance? And so then with that and in parallel with clinicians, then we worked on the development of a clinical trial. So a process. Yeah, that's, it's really, I think it's really kind of inspiring to see so much collaboration between the clinic and basic researchers. I think it's a really exciting time to, to be in biomedical research. I think it's a really great kind of collaborative environment, especially here at Yale. Yes, I totally agree. It's, uh, it's really, it's very exciting to, to be able to 
iteratively share results and information and the findings from the lab. Um, you know, we'll, we'll find something and I'll immediately talk to my clinical colleagues about what we found and, um, and vice versa. That's awesome. Um, so uh, to, to start wrapping things up, um, I think we wanted to ask you, um, what are some of the biggest mis- misperceptions that you find that those not working in the translational biomedical community have about animal models, drug development, or kind of any of the, the stuff that we've, we've been talking about? I think that perhaps one of the, um, one of the, 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 the things that I think is um, perhaps not understood um, that widely is, especially working in, um, in the translational space, is the complexity of working with um, uh, human specimens and with working and the variability that is associated with that. I think coming from the laboratory where we're very used to controlling every um, experiment that we do, it is um, it is a new challenge uh, when you really work in the uh, in the space in the the translational space um, to to really learn how to navigate that. Oh yeah, thank you so much for for joining us, and I think that uh, wraps up another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Thank you very much for having me here. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah, um, thanks again, Katie. And uh, thank you to our editors, editors-in-chief, Tomoaki Sasaki and Yasmin Zakanyaz and the rest of the YJBM staff. Um, we are produced by Helen Balenson, Erica Gorenberg, Ali Kuhlman, and Neil Ravindra. And a special thanks again to Dr. Politi for joining us today. Yeah, we also want to thank the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. We want to thank the Yale Broadcast Center for always helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Um, And if you want more information on YJBM or our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Um, Be sure to check out our journal online by searching Yale Journal Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please let your friends know about us. You can find us on iTunes University and on SoundCloud. Thanks for tuning in and join us in July and August for two episodes on infectious diseases, the focus topic for our June 2017 issue.